Hello, and welcome to the Tavern Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Tenkar, and this is another of our Designers and Makers series of Fireside Chats. Fireside Chats because we don't do interviews, we sit down with friends. With me today is Jay from Feral Games. Jay. Hi, uh, this is Jay, and I'm from uh, I'm the, the only person in Feral Games, Inc. Well, well, there you go. All right. So, as I explained to... Uh, uh, Jay, before the uh, before we started recording, I'm going to ask five questions. Of course, uh, it's a good thing I know my questions, Ashley. My my kitty on my desk who's lying on top of my questions. But the good thing I've done this over three dozen times, so I know the questions. You can't stop me. You can't stop me, girl. All right. So, Jay, um, tell us about your first RPG experience. What playing or designing? Uh playing and then we can talk about designing okay um i, I kind of started playing role-playing games when i was around 13 um and i kind of started with the fighting fantasy books i picked one of those up i think it was probably one of the first ones sort of left up dungeon i think so i picked that up and i really enjoyed it and from there i bought tunnels and trolls oh god the, yes advanced fighting fantasy book um and then from that i uh, met other people in school who also played role-playing games. One of the people I knew uh, put me on to things like RuneQuest. Yep. And Star Frontiers, which is uh, an old blast from the past. Um, I also remember playing AD&D 2nd Edition with my English school teacher at the time, um, who ran it. Um, And from there, basically, it went from... uh, I was never never a big fan of D&D. I always preferred RuneQuest. And from RuneQuest, I went into to Rollmaster and Call of Cthulhu uh, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, pretty much a lot of the older sort of games, uh, played pretty much most games, I think, that actually exist today and used to exist. Um, so I've been playing since I was 13, so that's quite a lot of years, 30 years plus. Um, and I've always wanted to, I always just sort of homebrew my own games sort of create rules for them, things I didn't like in the game, I'd change it to something that I preferred. Um, for instance, things like Pathfinder, I added, added a, an armor um, homebrew in there, so armor damage would not be like a, an AC, it'd be more like armor points coming off damage. Yeah, kind of like Tiles and Trolls. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <basically laughs> trying to make anything into a quest with Tiles and Trolls. Um, but yeah, so I've kind of always homebrewed things. I've always changed rules and so forth. And um, and then a few years back, uh, I was working, and then in 2008, the recession sort of hit, and I got made unemployed. I got made redundant, and I became homeless. And I was oh, homeless geez. for yeah, I was homeless for a good few years. Um, and then I met my partner, who uh, and I live with, and. I ended up living with her, and I thought, hold on, I've got this situation now. I've got this perfect situation where I could actually, you know, do something, right? I could change things. And I didn't want to work for people anymore because, I just, you know, I didn't want to have the risk of being unemployed again or whatever. I didn't want that hassle, really. So I thought, well, what do I like to do? And I thought, I like writing, and I like role-playing. So let's combine the two and write role-playing games. <laughs> so that's what I did. I got myself, uh, I had myself a laptop, and I got myself Word, and I got LibreOffice. And I basically built my first role-playing game, which was called Delve. 
uh, through LibreOffice, made it into a PDF. It was very badly made. The PDF didn't work whatsoever because it was uh, more of an image than a PDF because others screwed it up completely. But I released it for free on DriveThruRPG and it had like 2,000 downloads. Um, and I thought, well, this is working. So I made another game called Super Secret Spy Agency, which was basically a, a game based on things like Kingsman. Oh, okay. And uh, again, that was a free one. So I posted that one drive through, and again, that got downloaded as dot tons. People seemed to like it. And it went from there, really. That was it. That was me off and flying. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's, a, that's a hell of a path to get there. And, and, it's, and it's interesting, too, because I, I, I've done about three dozen of these interviews, and things that have never put, come into the conversation yet are Tunnels and Trolls, which I'm a huge fan of. And uh, I even have uh, Ken St. Andre's personal copy of second edition. I don't even wow. think there's any, you know, yeah. Well, well, just saying that, just quickly, my, uh -huh. highlight of my a highlight of my life practically, right, was the day that I was on Facebook and I just released something. It was my birthday, and Ken St. Andre sent me happy birthday wishes. I was like, no way. <laughs> Ken's a character. He's, a, he's definitely a character. <laughs> And, yeah. uh, and and now you played RuneQuest, and I'm assuming that was uh, the Games Workshop hardcovers. The re nope. No. Chaosium box set. Holy crap. So you see, like, I, I go back to uh, RuneQuest 2 is when Chaosium printed the, uh, the, hard, like, the hardcover, and I think they printed it in softcover too. Um, I, I never had the Chaosium box set, although I had Pavis and Big Rubble from uh, Chaosium. Yeah. And uh, and I had the Avalon Hill horrible. Yeah. Uh, the box set. That, <laughs> well, at least at least the uh, the Games Workshop version of the Avalon Hill came in these nice hardcovers that I picked up since on eBay, mm -hmm. and the artwork is 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 great. The presentation is awesome. The rules still suck. <laughs> I, I, but um, you know, it's it just I, I always enjoyed RuneQuest. Regretfully, my, my gaming group didn't enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah. Uh, I, I always had a good time with that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so, all right, so now all right, we're going to do our follow-up follow question. Then, uh, what is your go-to RPG system these days? What what system do you mostly play? Um, oh, that's hard to say. It, really. could be more than, it could be more than one, but, you know... It, it kind of depends on your mood, really. Um, okay. At the moment... I'm playing, I'll tell you what I'm playing at the moment. On a Tuesday, I play Call of Cthulhu. Um, we're doing the Origin Express uh, campaign. Okay. And uh, I've always loved Call of Cthulhu. I've always loved Lovecraftian stuff, so that's always been a big draw for me anyway. And because it's obviously uses the RuneQuest system, that was it was an obvious move. It was an easy one to... I love D100% our systems anyway. So, right. um, so yeah, so uh, Cthulhu on a Tuesday I'm playing at the moment. On a, on a Saturday, we're currently playing Fate. Uh, which is the first okay. Fate game I've ever played, actually. Um, and I didn't actually like Fate when I first started looking at it. Uh, I didn't like the concept and aspects and stuff. I found that a little bit confusing, does too much effort. <laughs> yeah. Or I don't know. I just found it confusing for somebody who's kind of learned his life through rules. It was kind of a bit too free-flowing. But since playing it and since reading all the books, uh, I've actually kind of really appreciate it and really like it. And then on a Sunday, I'm running a Conan 2D20 um game uh which i, I actually enjoy the 2d20 
good. I love character creation more than anything. Um, and I love crunchy character creation. I love the traveler creation back in the old days. Oh, yeah, uh, you can die. It's always awesome. <laughs> exactly. I loved all of that. Um, but I've had, a, I've had a go to, I don't think I have one go to system. Um, uh, the games that I have on my, uh, my favorite RPG shelf, um, I have thousands of role-playing games, so my ones on my shelf so at the moment are Simbrum, because I like the background. Coriolis, because again, I like the background. Uh, Mutant Year Zero, again, because I like the background. Conan, because I like the system and the background. Uh, I would say Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, the new one's quite good. Uh, I really like it. I used to have, a, I've got the first and second edition as well, but uh, the fourth is good. Um, I've always wanted to play Tales from the Loop. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm going for a bit of a free league thing. Um, but strangely enough, I don't actually like the Mutant Year Zero hit point system. I think it was better with Coriolis, but that's just me. Hmm. Yeah, it, it varies. Depends what mood I'm in, really. Sometimes I'm Discovery Fields all the time. Now, so. See, like you bring up, you bring up Warhammer, and yeah. my first introduction to Warhammer was the old thin box set that right. called itself Warhammer you know role play or something like that but really it was like <clears throat> single unit uh mass combat and i wish i could find that box it's in storage somewhere and then of course uh you know the, the regular warhammer fantasy role play from games workshop and then second second edition from green ronin Lo- loved it all great stuff then the box set with the funky dice that made no sense to me and was <laughs> on, and printed on really shitty paper uh yeah, yeah. no no, I, I own it, and uh, no, and I'm waiting to get my hands on the uh, the latest fourth edition, I guess, because it looks like it's a throwback to first and second. It is, yeah, very much so. Yeah, totally. Um, it's yeah. very good. I really like it. I think characterization is quite interesting because you have you can actually uh, choose to forego experience points by having choices, uh, and I kind of like that. I like that aspect of it. So uh... that's cool. Yeah. I, I, that's that that was uh the, the uh system where i had my first uh tpk total party kill <laughs> that i it would that i didn't do okay as a, as a gm it really wasn't me it was my uh the, the party mage uh who thought that he was like a mexican bandito but instead of having ammo crossing his chest it was a flask of oil and <laughs> so uh and he went to cast a fireball, and he critically failed. So it, it it was like ground zero impact with like I think it was twelve flasks of oil. So and the whole and the party was all near him, was trying to make sure that they were not in the fireball blast when he cast it away, and it was on him. And uh, yeah, there was there was there was no party left after that one. It seems wow. the fire is is frequently a way for uh, parties to kill themselves. So it was interesting. <laughs> All right, so um, let's go on to, um, and, and this is mostly what you're going to find in, oh, I, 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 it's certainly in D20 games, uh, the concept of save or die. And Tunnels and Trolls has a save aspect too, I guess, but, you know, uh, the idea that doesn't matter how powerful your character is, uh, if it's save or die and you fail your save, your, your character is dead. How do you feel about that concept? Depends on the game, I think. If it's a dark and kind of gray, something like 
hammer or symbol or something like that, then I suppose in a way that's fair enough. Um, if your character hasn't, you know, stocked up on enough healing potions to to uh, basically get him out of that self that, that sort of situation, then he hits the point where he is dead. Um, right. And he was saved. Then I guess um, the other side of it is obviously how quickly it takes to make another character. Um, uh, exactly. And Pathfinder, <laughs> if, if I kill you in Pathfinder and I save or die, you got to spend the next two hours on on your <laughs> laptop designing your character again. Yeah. That's one thing. If it's tunnels and trolls, or uh, I don't know, swords and wizardry, or one of the old D and D clones, where you can be up and running again ten, fifteen minutes, it isn't as as uh, detrimental, I guess. No, I mean for high fantasy games like D and D uh, and Pathfinder and so forth, I think that sort of thing works quite well. But I think I think also that because characters are meant to be heroes in those sort of games, um, but the opportunity to die should be quite slim. In a sense where if I was going to run a game where somebody was going to possibly die, they would have to die because they did something stupid. Um, you know, if they're going to, like, jump off a cliff, then, yeah, they're going to die um, because that's just how it is. You don't just jump off cliffs because, you know. Uh, but if they kind of do something and, it's, and for dice messes up, you know, they have a roll that basically just screws them, then I, I think it's a bit harsh if you just kill them off for that, really. I think uh, that's that shouldn't be... I think God's intervene and the heroic nature of the game should step in and uh, have that sort of movie moment when they uh, just saved themselves by the scene of their sort of teeth. It's like kind of watching, I guess, I don't know, the first uh, Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship. <clears throat> when you're watching it, you're, you're, you're seeing the characters survive impossible odds. And then when, once finally succumbs, like, you know, Boromir falls, but it's a traumatic fall. It wasn't just... Uh, yeah. You know, uh, oh man, he felt it safe. No, he 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 was dramatic. He was saving the hobbits and and yeah, I guess I guess keeping the storyline going. I mean, he went against the people of basically. That's what it, it was. But he took on a lot to save you know the hobbits. Um, yeah. So in that sense, if you're willing to to take that risk in order to, I think any character who goes into that situation where they have unbeatable odds always have in the back of their minds that they could die. Um, And I think in those situations, having a heroic death, something that's not just, all right, yeah, you fumbled, you're up your sword, somebody kicked your head off and you're dead. That's a bit kind of, hmm. if you're going to do that to someone in that sort of situation in a game, then you're going to have to, the GM is going to have to give out some heroic death sequence for that. Um, Angels sort of trumpets in the background, all that sort of stuff, you know, I mean, it's got to be pretty spectacular, I think. Yeah, it should be. Generally speaking, it should be worth it. And, and, and again, <clears throat> it depends on the system you're playing. If it's a system where, you know, re-rolling a character is quick and easy, it has, I think, less of an impact. Whereas, if you're going to be stuck sitting out the rest of the session and maybe some some of the next session, re, you know, reworking your character, unless you're going to say, "All right, I'm going to be uh, my dead character's brother, same stats." Uh, same basic equipment, same same skills, same feats. Yeah, but that kind of defeats the purpose too. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think well, what would be nice, right? And I don't know if anybody's ever done. This, and I'm surprised if they haven't to be honest. But it would be nice if there was a website, right, that you could immortalize your character when they have a heroic death, where you can upload the character sheet and give a little blurb about how they died and what happened and stuff. So it was on the internet forever. 
so people can go into this like graveyard of characters and look at past characters from different games and see how they died and that'd be kind of cool that would be really cool actually an rpg uh, memorial for your characters but only ones that have died from so obviously the admin would have a last say on whether that death was heroic or not or just stupid right so <laughs> um but have it up there so that you could be immortalized forever that'd be awesome yeah i gotta talk to my uh Programmers on the uh, Discord server here for the tavern and see what the, anybody yeah. could hook something like that up. That would be interesting. And then each month you could even have a prize for the best heroic death, or once every six months or something, or three months or whatever. Do you know what I mean? You yeah. And somebody oh, get okay. a game or something, or one of the publishers that you kind of deal with could offer a PDF of a game as a prize for the best heroic death of the of a quarter or a month or something. I like I like that idea. Yeah, that, that's. That's really cool. Yeah. I, 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 you know, it, it can't. I mean, you, all right, you left me a quarter of my, my, my bladder here, so I will uh, make, make a note about heroic deaths. <laughs> and, and, and heroic deaths website. There was, and no, you don't have to take the pencil from my hands because I'm writing. All right. All right. So we have, all right we're gonna, let, let's, let's hit the last question then. And then, yeah. we're, and then we're gonna, and then we'll 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 freestyle and, and go off the beaten path. Um, you came into gaming at the age of thirteen. Yeah. Um, that thirteen-year-old you, looking at you now, and and what you've been doing in gaming, what you're involved with, what would that thirteen-year-old think? Um. I don't know. I think you pretty much think I was cool, hopefully. Um, and that he'd want to play the games I make. I'd like to think that. That'd be good. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, really, isn't it? I mean, I mean, yeah, I think, I'd like to think that he thought that the games I make were cool and he'd want to play them. Cool. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not an easy question to, to answer. And I, I, I've, I've learned that it's usually the one that, that stumps people because it, it, it's hard sometimes to, to, to even envision. Because as somebody else pointed out, the, the, the progress that we've seen in the last, in, in my case, when I was 13, I'm, for the last 38 years, where uh, maybe you had a friend that had like a, I don't know, an Atari 400, where you had to enter everything. Uh, by hand, if you were going to run a program or a tape deck that would take forty-five minutes to load. <laughs> yeah, I mean, say one. I mean, I didn't say one, uh, which was yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it, it's memories for me. My my first uh, computer was a, a Coleco Atom, which was basically a Coleco Vision with uh, a digital tape deck, keyboard, and Daisy Wheel printer. That was louder than the trains passing my house a block away. Oh my god, it was! <laughs> I tried putting it on 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 styrofoam and other or or rubber and and blankets uh, and nothing quieted it down. Nothing muffled that sound. I remember the Commodore sixty four was actually came with tape decks built in, didn't they? Yeah, um, you know something uh, no, well the well the Commodore sixty four keyboard was your computer. 
and then you either bought a tape deck or a floppy drive. And I had a floppy drive with my 64. Because uh, my 64 was the set was the I don't know the second generation. It wasn't that curved keyboard. It had sharp. It had sharper angles. It, it was a 64 C. And uh, oh, I I had a blast with that. And of course, uh, I I do not endorse um, pirating of games. But when I was in my teens and had no money, and friends were like, "Well, oh, just you know, buy you know." Blank floppies and don't buy the double sided floppies. Make your own by getting a hole puncher and just punching that hole on the other side of the floppy to make <laughs> a double sided floppy. And that's how I got a lot of my games until I was like 19 and, and had a real job. And then I was like, I, I'd, I'd rather pay for my stuff. But, <laughs> well, it also made, made it easier if you were doing the. Uh, SSI gold box games, which a lot of times either had to like use that little wheel to, you know, every once in a while there's like that stop uh, point in the game and you had to break out the wheel and line up, you know, <laughs> three different sections to get the actual code that you had to type in. I remember, I remember playing Barbarian on Commodore 64. Oh, wow. When you used to have a side scrolling fighting thing where you cut the heads off at the end. And you hold her head up, and you're like, oh, like a bump. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I remember playing that. And uh, I, I, I did actually get an Amiga 500, which I upgraded to Amiga to five to one meg because it was 500 uh, kilobytes. And then I upgraded to another 500 to, to meg. You know, I always, I always wanted uh, an Amiga. I always, you know, remember the cool games were on the Amiga, the great graphics. Yeah. Although, although then you were putting your graphics through your, you know, your CRT TV, and you, there was no such thing as great graphics when you were watching it through <laughs> yeah. a 13-inch color TV. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Like the splice. Oh. I think my gaming kind of died on Mega when the Mega Drive came out. So I bought a Mega Drive with a 16K RAM pack, which I, I well, is it you could boost from you could boost the actual RAM on the Canadian Mega Drive, you could boost the thing at the back. So I got oh, that. Nice. I, uh, Swords of a Million was one of my favourite games on Mega Drive, which was a role-playing game, sort of road, sort of like type role-playing game. And I remember it because uh, the the Mega Drive was the uh, wasn't that like over here the Sega Genesis. Say Genesis, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, I had sort of a million uh, Streets of Rage. Uh, oh, what, what was that? The Buck Rogers game. I was, yeah, I um, yeah, it was it was built on like the Gold Box uh, style D and D. Oh, right, okay. TSR had TSR was owned by uh, what is it? Uh, Oh God! Now I'm forgetting her name, but uh, she she was one of the heirs to the uh, Buck Rogers, uh, I don't know, uh, IP. Right. So, so she basically licensed her work to her company and double checked and made money. But uh, <laughs> it was it was the only, one of the few art. Well, it might have been the only RPG on a uh, on a Genesis that I actually finished and got to the end on. It was yeah. actually achievable. I was surprised. Usually you couldn't finish them. I think I completed Swords of Vermillion, but I can't remember. It's been a long time ago. But yeah, Swords of Vermillion was one of the Golden Axe was another one. Oh, um, God, Golden Axe was a blast and a half. Well, that's weird you say that, right? Because 
in about two thousand three, two thousand four, I was living in um, a city called Lancaster over here, and uh, I had a basement in my house. I was living. In. I turned it into a games room, and I endeavoured to buy all the old consoles. So I had Dreamcast, Mega Drive, all of that stuff. And um, I got Golden Axe for the Mega. I thought, yeah, this is going to be awesome. But, you know, it was so bad. Well, it, it was, was awesome. It was awesome for the time. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> It's just, I mean, yeah, nostalgia is just a you know a bitch really. It's not like yeah, and, and like the Genesis, I I bought the Genesis because I worked in a, in a department store selling electronics, and that was the one video game system that we actually sold. So I wound up, and, and my and my department manager's like, "Wow, you're in your twenties. Why would you be buying a video game system?" I'm like, "You have no clue, <laughs> no clue." And uh, yeah, no, I I had. Uh, some of the some of the games uh, weren't as much fun, but like my gaming group was hooked on the uh, Electronic Arts mini golf game, which right. only the first I don't know six months of production of the Genesis could run it. Like the later Genesis wouldn't run games from Electronic Arts because they weren't uh, licensed. But we could play them, and we we would play. Uh, I don't know if it was called Zany Golf or not, but we would play this for like an hour before actually playing D and D or whatever RPG we we're going to play, because it was just addictive, and you could play four players because you just pass the controller around. It's amazing what you. I still have my Genesis up in the attic. <laughs> God. I, I don't think the, uh, the the Sega CD that attached to it is going to still work at this point. I I sincerely doubt it. Yeah. But I'm sure the uh, I'm sure the Genesis will still uh, work. Yeah, but, possibly. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't I don't know I don't know if I want to go through the effort of setting that up and trying to put it on my my 50 inch TV because I think I'm going to be sorely disappointed in the uh, in the results. I'm probably better off just having fond memories. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I, I told you before we started recording it, we were going to go off on weird tangents, so we certainly did. <laughs> yeah. And so tell, you know, tell us a, a little bit about what you have uh, have worked on and, and what you are working on. Okay, so um, I've worked on, I've uh, done a lot of games, really. Um, a lot of them weren't great. Um, <laughs> my early stuff is... is uh, it's still very much a learning process, really. I think our biggest sort of game to date at the moment is probably Ghost Ops, okay. uh, which has been very, very popular. Um, and that's where you play special oper operatives in a kind of a wartime, um, sort of modern-day covert ops sort of game. Uh, it's been very, very popular with a lot of the military, actually. Um, and that's been, yeah, that's been massive. That's been pretty popular with both Savage Worlds and the standard version. Uh, we did two versions of that. That's been really good. Um, I do a lot of little mini games as well. So I've done things like uh, role-playing games, two-sheet role-playing games, where things like Baker Street Regulars, where you play members of the Baker Street Regulars from Sherlock Holmes, which who are the kids. Oh, yeah. Uh, you play a member of those sort of doing jobs of Sherlock Holmes. And I've done a little, other few little things like uh, sort, of, sort of mini dungeon RPGs. So it's got all the rules you need to play and everything else, and it's all kind of just all on two sheets. Um, and I've also done, there was a game we did, a science fiction game called The Zombie Squad we done, which was for D20 and for Powered by Apocalypse. Um, that went all right. Um, it's one of those games that I look at now and think, 
where I really want to update that and improve it. Um, but yeah, Ghost Ops has been uh, our biggest game, popular game. Then we've got, at the moment, we've got Wraith Recon, which is kickstarting at the moment. Um, I, I've heard good feedback from people who have, uh, I guess, played the first edition of that or an earlier edition. Yeah, we're basically, we've got um, to remake it. And I wanted to basically bring it up to date, uh, add some new stuff to it, expand upon it. Uh, because it's, it's very kind of, it was done for D&D edition and for R- RuneQuest uh, 2, which I think was the, uh, could have been the Mongoose RuneQuest, actually. And, um, yeah, I want to kind of, we're going to kind of re-release it for edition and uh, for our own system as well, um, using the similar systems of Boston Ghost Ops. And uh, expand the world and expand the technology and make it a little bit more modern and just clean up a little bit, really. Um, it'll still be a setting book for Souls Wars and D&D, but it, it, depending on how well it funds, it may be a full RPG for, uh, for our own system. Uh, oh, nice. So, yeah, if you like the original uh, Ray Freak on this, is the same kind of thing, but just better, really, expanding on it. Uh, and making it up to date for more up-to-date systems. Uh, it's a great little fantasy world, and uh, yeah, we've you know we've added a lot of things like drones where you can play. Uh, you can have animal um, familiars, so you can actually send your eagle out, sort of looking for stuff. And you've got drones, which are kind of fairies with um, the ability to send information back to the the the, the, the drone operator, if you like. Okay. So drones, and um, obviously you have a spell con system, which is kind of like an intercon system that all the characters can talk to each other through comms, and it also works as night vision. And we've got uh, repeating crossbows, which act like kind of like the modern day assault rifle, so you can you know have those assault moments and all that kind of thing. All the all the technology and Griffin flying crossbow wielding air force. <laughs> Um, <laughs> dragons and all sorts of things. It's going to be really cool. I mean, uh, if you get to make it, if it actually and stuff and everything goes well on it, it, it could be really, really cool. So I'm looking forward yeah. to making it. That uh, should be good. Um, the other thing I'm working on at the moment, well, we're just finished actually, uh, finished it today, in fact, uh, was League of Seekers, which is a Cthulhu based 18th century uh, RPG where you play a members of a secret organization that basically goes out to kill kill uh, cultists and monsters and so forth um it's his massive history to it it all starts like in 730 ad where damascus and the and uh, abdul halazrad sort of appears in damascus and he gets taken in by these by his brotherhood uh and brings him back because he, he's all ill and dehydrated and because he's just walked through a desert and they basically take him in and feed him and keep him well and at this point he writes the alazif or the necronomical you want to call it and uh because of the terrors that this necronomicon has we uh we the brotherhood brick him up on the solomon's temple um and then it splits on to 1135 a.d the templars come along and unearth solomon's temple and unleash the necronomicon and all the horrors that it brings causing the world to fall into this sort of dark plague-like uh, abyss of horror and over these centuries things open these spheres to Yosof off and uh, people like Gilderay and uh, Vlad Tepes and all of these horrors that have gone on throughout history sort of open these spheres up. So when the game starts in the 18th century, in 1765, 
Europe and uh, the colonies of America are beset by monsters and folk, folk legends have come back to life, you know, things like Baba Yaga and all of that and Cthulhu monsters and horrible cults and there's quarantine zones where the infected are, are stacked away and in parts of London and Paris. Um, it's kind of like Cthulhu meets Bloodborne. Um, Damn. And uh, you basically play a seeker who is de- who basically is there to uh, hunt out these monsters and these cults and put an end to it before the horror turns. Uh, you get to play a seeker, or you can hood via a Muslim Brotherhood that first locked away um, Abdullah Azraid. You can play one of them, or you can play a vampire, uh, Vlad Tepes, who uh, is now a, a full-blown vampire due to a deal he made with a demon, um, holds back the Ottoman Empire from the eastern border of Europe, uh, but he's actually a, dra- a vampire and he has side of the vampires and these vampires now help the Seekers. So you can actually be a vampire with the Seekers um, with all the abilities that brings and all the you know weaknesses that brings as well. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much uh, the thing I've just finished working on. Wow, you've got, you've got a full plate. Now I'm, I'm looking at your page on Drive-Thru RPG. Yeah. And you've, you've got nearly three dozen titles. That's... Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I like the fact that uh, the Ghost Stop core rules are pay what you want. I mean, if you if you want to get support material, uh, I, you know, there's there's a price on it, but uh, pay what you want for the core rules is is awesome. It's it's like giving that free hit of crack back in the uh, late '80s and '90s to somebody, uh, and uh, once they find they like it. You know, then then they're hooked for more. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say though that the uh, pay what you want was only for a week. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that actually ends today. Um, oh well, all right. Yeah, sorry about that. But um, yeah, I mean, we have got obviously each of those books for Ghost Ops is available in both hardback and softback, which we had to sort of put on private because obviously uh, pay what you want affects them as well. Um, which could be quite pricey. So yeah, so yeah, that's only for a week. After today, it goes back to normal price. It's only ten dollars, uh, so it's not very okay. expensive. No, uh, no, not bad at all. I, I know a load of people be- grabbed it in the last week. We've, we've done, you know, hundreds of people have grabbed copies of it in the last week. So we have, you know, hooked up hundreds of people with the game free mainly. Um, and there's a ton of source material for it on there. Um, the Project Looser is the latest thing, which is. Do you remember that computer game called Fear? We basically, uh, you're a special operative and you had to go into this place and all these people were like psychic soldiers and there's like a horror element to it and uh, they were calling upon demons from the uh, from the abyss and all that sort of stuff. Well, basically, the Lucifer Project allows you to play that kind of game where your, your enemies are psychic soldiers and demons. Uh, it's optional. You don't have to play that. You don't have to do that at all. But um, yeah, it's an optional kind of uh, world that you can play in. Using uh, ghost stops. Interesting, man. That, that's that, that's pretty damn cool. And I'm 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 looking at this, and I'm just like, wow. I it, it's a it's a catalog there that's that's really nice and uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, we've done a lot of stuff. Well, I've done a lot of stuff. I'm pretty. I mean, there's only me in Feral Gamers Inc. I get freelance writers in. I tend to use the same freelance writers or same freelance artists as well because I've kind of got a relationship with them now and they're, 
And even though they're not part of a team, they you know, you know, I don't pay them like a salary or anything, or I don't pay them any kind of royalty. They all kind of, they all tend to sort of work on the games I write, um, and they all kind of know what I want, and we all kind of work together. But I'm kind of a guy who does majority of the rule writing, the layout, all of that governs um, is all me really. Um, so yeah, so I'm pretty much at this sort of you know, seven days a week. Uh, believe it, or not, I, I can relate to the, to seven days a week because um, I, I don't I've missed a day of blog posting and I don't know five years, uh, <laughs> and and now the podcast has been daily for nearly a year, so yeah. and, and it takes uh, a certain amount of discipline to to keep yourself um, producing or working yeah. on your, your projects. Uh, constantly and not taking time off. I mean, and it takes an it takes an understanding family too. You know, it takes it takes a, a a good partner in your life. I mean, my my wife, God bless her, uh, she's dealt with this for uh, our seven and a half years of marriage, and she has no problem with it. And I was like, you sure? It's a lot, a big time investment here, and she's just like, yeah, you enjoy it. You know, do it. It makes you feel good. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to have a, a similar kind of wife. Really. Um, she's very supportive, and she uh, she does. He he she, she knows I'm going to sit here and work from nine o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night, and so you know, she provides my lunches and my dinner, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is keeping the cat happy at this moment while to keep him quiet. So, uh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, no, it's it does help having that support network. Um, completely yeah. behind you because it can come to a point where you get. I mean, I've got to a point where I hit walls, um, or I just start sort of thinking, I can't do this. Like, I've got to take a day off. Um, and only recently that I've actually decided to start, you know, to, to have definite days. So on, on Monday to Friday, I work nine till half five and I stop. Okay. And then on a Saturday and Sunday, I try to take time off. Um, it doesn't always happen. But I try to take Saturday and Sunday off if I can. But recently I haven't done really because I've had to get stuff out because things are being a little bit late. And, um, and that's kind of a, one, of the, one of the things about Kickstarter, I think, is that when you've got a load of backers um, expecting something, it kind of pushes you on a bit because I don't want to let people down if I can help it. Right. And... Uh, so it's a good motivation having that many people sort of sitting there waiting for it because you know that, you know, it's not about me. I can't just sit here and go, oh, I'll do it today or I'll do it tomorrow. I've got to keep doing it. Uh, so. Well, you know, and, and and that's the weird thing about Kickstarter because it, it, for somebody like you, um, having those backers with that expectation is a yeah. motivation. And there are others who uh, get get paid the money kickstarter pays out the money and it's like oh my god this is i, I don't know the last time i had a check for thirty thousand dollars sitting in my account and they don't necessarily uh realize the business sense of that thirty thousand dollars is already accounted for whether it's paying <laughs> yourself for your work and artists layout uh, you know and i've it, it's gotten better over the recent years but when I was first following Kickstarter and 
uh, I'm a super backer, so I don't know when super backer kicks in, but it's over 350 projects I've backed over the years. Um, A lot of those earlier projects were people who had produced something in, in, in the industry prior, maybe for one of the bigger companies, put out their, basically put out their own shingle, Once, went, made their own little company, uh, limited liability company, and kick-started, and maybe they were looking to raise five grand, and they raised 47000 The next thing you know, they are renting office space, hiring a receptionist, <laughs> and, then six, and then six months later, they're back on Kickstarter saying the funds are gone and nothing's going to come because they're just don't understand the business sense. Uh, you obviously have a sense of the business sense, but again, this is, this is your gig. This is, this is your job. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's only been the last year, I think that we've actually started making a profit. Um, before that, I mean, at the moment, uh, as a director of a company, because I'm, I'm a director of a company, I, I can't. We we still kind of live on benefits, um, right? So we, don't, I mean, this is my job, um, and so we kind of live on benefits, and we sort of rely upon government handouts to be able to live how I live. So I, in order to pay for my rent and that sort of stuff, I have government handouts. We don't make enough money for me to do that myself at the moment, and any money I do make, generally any money we make on, I mean, we do make money, obviously, but all of it goes goes back into making gains, right? And, well, and- uh, some of that is, like, you know, and that's something else that people don't necessarily understand is that to work towards success, you literally have to pay towards success. Exactly. Yeah, totally. I mean, this, the money we've made, I mean, this shows that we are making, we are making money in the last few months. We're able to be able to pay for our convention this June. So we have a convention in the UK called the UK Games Expo. And in order for, and I've paid for that completely out of the money I've made selling ghost ops. Wow. Um, so I've paid for the stand and I paid for electric and I paid for all the stuff that comes to, and it's like two grand, 2000 pounds. Right. Wow. And I've still got money in the account on drive through to buy stock because I've still get the, to do buy stock. Um, so basically, yeah, the money I've made on drive through through selling games, I'll put back into selling games. Um, I very rarely take any money out. If I do spend money, I tend to buy games with it uh, because I'm kind of I'm interested because that's part of research for me now, really. Right. Tax deductible. <laughs> um, so I can, you know, I buy games, occasionally see new games that come out. I'm kind of interested, or I want to see what their layout is like. Layout is a very big thing I like to look at in games at the moment. How they lay their games out. Quite sad, really. I never really thought about it before. Over the last few years, I've actually started looking at lay and go, "Ooh, that's not nice help." Um, so, so yeah, so an awful lot of uh, yeah, most of the money we make tends to go straight back into into the business. And it'd be nice one day to be able to pay. I look forward to that day. When I make so much money that I can actually pay myself a monthly wage, would be great. Uh, I can come well, off benefits and I'll be able to live my life. But, well, yeah. and, and and there's something else that that isn't even mentioned, but. You know, you're building up uh, a base of customers. And the, the hope is that at some point you hit that critical mass where you have a customer base that supports your work enough that, like you said, you can pay yourself a monthly salary. You know, yeah. um, it, it's the same thing I've noticed with even people coming into blogging and podcasting or they, they, they expect to come into stuff and automatically have an audience. 
and you have to build that audience and success is not instantaneous. You're not going to come into it uh, with, you know, a, a huge number of people uh, wanting to listen to you, you talk or your written word or your published word. You have to put the time and the effort in to get there. And, and you can cool. put the time and the effort. And it's obvious. So, Yeah. I mean, it's lucky. I mean, some people, you know, they walk straight into it. I mean, I can mention people like Monty Cook and Robert Schwab and stuff who have had past experience, and their 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 their, uh, their success in their own games has been based on that past experience. Like Monty Cook, for example, did three point five ADD and stuff. Yep. Um, I would I'd be surprised if Nuremera would have done as well if he hadn't have done that. Right. He uh, had to. He had to build up awareness of himself prior. Yeah, he he worked on. He he also before Nuremera. He was working on D and D next. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so, so with somebody like me who hasn't got that background, <clears throat> it's a lot harder. Yeah. Because uh, people are very people aren't going to spend money on something that they don't know anything about, <clears throat> and they're going to look at it and think, "Well, I've never heard of that crap," you know. And that's one of the risks you take with things like Kickstarter, really. To be honest, um, is you know maybe the product is not going to be as good as it sounds on the page, and that's just a risk you take. And it's a risk you take with anything that you don't know about yeah um and that's something that every independent publisher is sort of battling against really is that you know need to prove themselves that the next product will be the same or better than the last so that people will think oh i bought the last one that was really good by the next one you know it's difficult right really. it, it, uh, uh, certainly you know because you always have to raise that bar and yeah. at, at, at some point, uh, how much further can you raise it? Exactly. I, I don't, you know, and I've I, I've seen that with a number of companies, and and Kickstarter is a weird beast because it's not just a funding platform; it's it's a marketing platform. It is, yeah, totally. Um, it no. is very much so. I mean, it's one of the things I tend to do, and I've done with very little success. Actually, was I have a strong belief that independent RPGs. Uh, the lifeblood of a, of a hobby, really, uh, because it's those things that keep everything changing and keeping everything sort of moving, really. If everything was just Pathfinder and D&D and Traveller or, you know, these main, it would be very dull, really, very quickly. So independent RPGs are very important, and you can see that for things like Apocalypse World and so forth, which all started off as very small and built their way up. But on Kickstarter, I see an awful lot of people who release RPGs and there's the first time I've ever done it and they're not doing very well. So I often message these people and say, look, you know, if you need any advice or help or anything, get in contact. I'm, I'm happy to help you. I don't want any money from them. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell them anything. I just want to sort of say, look, you know, how you're doing things. And the amount of times that people have contacted me and said, oh, yeah, you know, no, I'm doing all right. I've paid for this marketing and I've paid Facebook and I've paid this. And I'm thinking, why? <laughs> why? It's the worst thing you can do. And the best marketing is, is you. You're the best marketing for it. Because Facebook don't care about your game. Some marketing company doesn't care about your game. You're the best person to promote your own game. And paying somebody else to do it just doesn't work. Um, well, you know. because hopefully you believe in your game and you believe in yourself and you believe in your work. And, exactly. you know, somebody on the side, I mean, if you have a way uh, to have 
I don't know, uh, an ad put out that is going to be directed at your particular market, that's fine. But a lot of times, they, these ads are just put out, I don't want to say randomly, but certainly without much much market research within the hobby. And you have to have real feel for where to go. Advertisement can work, but I think uh, on on our level, and when I say our level, the, the independent level, and not not the larger, you know, third party publishers like Goodman Games and Frog Guy Games, they, they can benefit from advertising because they have a large community and a large reach and they just need to make that reach larger. But on, on our level, it is that word of mouth and that uh, able to connect with your community that I think holds more weight than any kind of ad that you're going to put out there. Well, exactly. I mean, anybody can post in, in Facebook RPG groups. Anybody can post on Reddit, post on RPG. Yeah. Anybody can come on, on on the Discord, on this Discord channel, and post things in the Kickstarter page or or even say, look, you know, how about can I do a podcast, you know? Um, and that's the best kind of advertising you can do because that's what people – you know, because if, if I see an advert or something, I don't, I ignore it unless it's in a group where I actually go to and read the stuff, and it's a post, not some sort of sidebar. You know, um, and you never see posts of role-playing games by somebody other than a person who's producing that game. So these marketing companies you hear about, where do they post these things? I've never seen them. You know, I've never seen an advert posted of a role-playing game by somebody other than a person doing that role-playing game. So generally speaking, they obviously are just – it's a scam, really. I mean, at the end of the day, I honestly think they're a scam. The best advertising you can do for it is just to do it yourself. Post stuff out on Facebook, Reddit, RPG Greek, on Discord channels, places where role-players actually read and go to and look at and not some weird marketing company who's going to charge you 500 quid or whatever – to post it in some random place that you're never going to ever see. And, it's not targeted, uh, is it? Yeah, it's not targeted. Yeah. Anyway, that's my rant over. No, and, and it's a, like I said, it's a legitimate rant. And uh, the, uh, the I, 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 I would say that to effectively market, you probably need more than $500 worth of ads on Facebook. And that's something that, uh, on our level, we are not going to be able to bring to the table. So marketing like that is not going to be effective. But like you said, you know, hitting social media um, and being your own evangelist, you know, evangelizing your own work is certainly uh, more effective and more certainly more cost effective than the handful of uh, customers you might pick up for your Five hundred dollar investment, or whatever it will be, buying advertisement. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's see. I think say with independents who just started out a Kickstarter thing, and they haven't got a great deal of money, and then they're getting bombarded by all these marketing teams offering all this great, amazing stuff, and it never funds. Um, you think, well, you just spent out two thousand pound on marketing, and it didn't come to any. Right. So now, now you're you're out of that. You're out. Of, you're out of pocket. Yeah. Exactly. Two grand, uh, and and you did you know you don't even fund them. Then what? Yeah, exactly. What's and how many people actually you know pay these money to these marketing companies? Then think, oh, I don't do, I don't need to do any marketing myself because they're doing do it for me. And no. 
you know, and it happens, you know, and uh, but if you're doing a Kickstarter and uh, you get a message from me, um, take me on board because I will help you. I don't want anything for it. I'm not asking for anything. I just want to see you succeed uh, because I think that with more people out there making independent RPGs about. So, uh, and I'll help market your bloody game for free. I'll post it everywhere if I have to. There you go. And, and to be honest with you, I, I, I have... There, there, there was a there was a period of time at the end of last year that I was probably getting uh, I don't know anywhere from eight to a dozen requests every month to look at pre-release Kickstarter pages for people. Because you know, I, again, I, I I've put, I, I've backed a number of Kickstarters, I've critiqued a number of Kickstarters, um, and. I have no problem if you reach out to me and you want me to take a look at something. It, it's free advice. I I don't get paid for it. I don't ask to get paid for it. I, I want I want Kickstarters to succeed, and a lot of times, and, and when I say succeed, it also means yes, you might fund. Funding does not mean success. Funding <laughs> means that funding means that that you know you, you you hit that that post that actually allows you to collect the money. But actual success is getting that project out in a timely fashion, according to the schedule that you put out there, and um, I and, and avoiding things like I don't know, infinite stretch goals in print or uh, offering coffee mugs as a stretch goal, not realizing how much it's going to cost you to ship, let alone <laughs> produce. I uh, it was a couple of years ago, man. It it was really bad. People were, were probably losing money on Kickstarter. Because they did not understand uh, the business side of it, and that's really what it comes down to. You have to treat it like a business. Well, in a weird kind of way, they've kind of screwed it for other people, really, because now people expect stretch goals, don't they? They kind of look at it and think, "Oh, I don't know, the stretch goal. There's no stretch goals, or whatever." But a lot of people just won't back again because there's no stretch goals, or the stretch goals aren't very interesting. <laughs> and I think that's really sad. It's like it's not a prize, you know what I mean? <laughs> no. It, 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 my personal opinion when it comes to stretch goals, uh, especially for smaller publishers, is your stretch goals should be strictly in PDF. And your, your, your first two or three stretch goals that you're offering, they should all be small anyway. But if it's written material, it should be something that you've already written and would have, would have put into the core book, except for the fact that you, you limited your core book to a certain size. So this stuff should be already stuff that you have so it, it shouldn't be costing you anything it just be encouraging people the cost to add a physical stretch goal when you're not increasing the actual amount of money that each person is pledging is uh madness unless you're i don't know goodman games and are raising a hundred thousand dollars and you can to put in your i don't know bookmarks or character sheets that you can you know print in China for, uh, I don't know, uh, 100 sheets for 10 cents. We are not yeah. really affecting your bottom line. But a lot of times people are like, oh, well, I'm going to put in the GM screen. Well, I hope you budgeted for that initially because you might have just killed all your profits from that GM screen. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's like with Ray Free Con, for example, um, the stretch goals there are kind of like generally internal. So the idea is is that if we hit, like, I think the second stretch goal is Dardaric. So if we hit the Dardaric stretch goal, I've actually got a writer sitting there waiting just to expand the whole Dardaric section um, and to make it bigger and more, you know, more information and, and uh, generally fresh it out a bit more sort of uh, in-depth 
And a lot of the writers I've got actually for Ray Farico helped with the original Ray Farico. Oh, nice. Which is kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, so at the moment, the, uh, the funding level is just for artwork and layout and the general kind of uh, cleaning up of the original uh, the, the rule sections and stuff, which I'm going to have to, you know, we get other, I get other people to sort of do rule sections who know the rules better than I do. And it allows me to have a bit more time doing my bit. Um, so that all cover, kind of covers that, but any of the stretch goals do cover extra stuff in the book. Um, so the book will, will grow as a stretch pro and stretch goals get knocked down, I think. So, uh, well, that's yeah. worth it. But we've got, uh, we've got some good writers. I mean, we've got, you know, Darren Pierce, who's just finished writing the Judge Dredd role-playing game, and also the Rafe Raff and Glory, Warhammer 40k role-playing game, and did a lot of stuff for Lone Wolf. Uh, August Han has also done a lot for, for, for Lone Wolf. Richard August, another writer we've got on board, who did uh, the Corvus Infinity uh, Modiphius game and uh, some of the Conan stuff for Modiphius. Um, so we've got some pretty good writers behind it waiting to jump in there and uh, do their bit um, as soon as we hit those goals, really. Um, but that's the trouble, see, as being an independent and having no money, basically, it does. It, I do rely very heavily on the Kickstarter uh, to, to actually produce the game. If you don't fund, the chances are the game won't be made. So I just don't have the well, money. Well, and, and, and that's it too, Kickstarter. Um... That's what it's for, really, isn't it? Right. It, <laughs> it, it allow, something, you know, right. it's not a pre-order, which is what a lot of people... Yeah, no, it allows you to... Yeah, it allows you to fund a project um, with literally a less risk to the project creator as opposed to them being, you know, putting out money that a lot of times isn't even there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think that the the... Largest key to Kickstarter success when it comes to the RPG industry is to have your core product written. Well, what, you know, the hopes and dreams, having a great idea, and then uh, I don't know, like Far West, seven and a half years later, still not have it out there because <laughs> it was a great idea and you were psyched, but putting it on paper is a totally different thing. Yeah, Put it on, yeah. you know, have it written down, have have that. Have those four rules done, and then you can worry about the uh, the, the stretch goals or the extras. But you know, once you have that core product written, you have something to offer your your, your backers. Yeah, you know, like you do. This is kind of one of the good things about Rafe Recon, really, because a lot of it's already written. <laughs> right. Um, and it is just a case of we've got all the files and just moving everything across and just in, in, you know in expanding the product really and making it better. Um, We've had new maps made and stuff, so even like the original maps. So the artwork's been improved. We've got some new artwork. We've coloured the artwork because it was all black and white. So all of that is kind of, you know, I mean, really is just a case of uh, um, integrating the rules. And I've, we have got quick starts for both Ray Freecon, Savage Worlds, and the, uh, the Fudge Dice, the uh, Feral Engine, we call it, version on drive-through for free. So you can actually download those and check it out. So. Now, is that based uh, on fudge or fate? Well, yeah, no, it's kind of, it uses fudge dice. And that's oh. as close as it kind of gets, really. Huh? I like fudge dice. I think they've got a really good, like, curve on them. And, um, and Ghost Ops has worked really well using fudge dice. It, it really does give you a lot of uh, options. All right, that's nice. Well, 
it, it, it's funny because I, I I still remember finding the fudge rules. Oh my god! I I, I think when I found the internet, and uh, I, I I like the idea that the fudge rules were made that so you could literally cut out anything that you did, that didn't fit. You just dropped. It was yeah. like fudge rules could come down to a, a page of rules if you really wanted to. Because it wasn't that much that was needed besides explaining how to add up those dice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we still kind of use a thing where you roll the fudge dice and add your skill to it, but we add new rules, we have pools and stuff, and we have uh, advantages and disadvantages where, you know, if you've got the advantage, then obviously the, the, the target number's less, and disadvantage means it's higher and stuff, and there's various different rules we've added to it, and it kind of expands upon the whole which takes it very much away from fudge. It's still a pretty simple system, uh, but we have things like uh, bullet time where you can actually uh, jump into a room and take out all the guards, and it's all sort of done in slow-mo. Um, so we have all of that kind of Tom Clancy kind of action movie stuff going on with it. So. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I think we've uh, covered a large amount of... Uh, a ground in this episode, pretty good. Yeah. Now, yeah, your your uh, Kickstarter is uh, that what another two days to fund? I think ends on Sunday. Yeah, uh, we're six hundred pounds from funding goal, uh, which is oh. not very much, really. Uh, no, and usually those last two days have a huge upswing. It's the first two days, the last two days, and that uh, slow middle ground. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, exactly. Um, it's unusual for us. It's normally all our Kickstarters are kind of funded within the first few days. Um, hmm. Ghost Ops funded within three hours. Um, really? And that funded twice um, <laughs> because it funded within three hours and then somebody kind of mentioned the fact that the postage was a little bit wrong. And I thought, oh, God, I can't change it now because obviously people have backed all the pledges and stuff and I can't right. change it. So what I did was I cancelled the whole Kickstarter after oh, it funded geez. And restarted it with a whole new set of pledges about half an hour right. later, and it funded again in three hours. So nice. uh, it funded twice in one day. So, that, well, that's awesome. <laughs> that well, awesome. But I didn't want to. I, I knew that I didn't want to screw over the backers by having. No. So I thought I, the only way I'm going to do this and do it right, so that backers get you know make it fair, is to basically right. cancel and restart. And it was a big risk, but it was worth it because um, you know it was you know. Oh, it's, it's funded, it, it, yeah, uh, funded, it funded in hours. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put a link to the Kickstarter up in the show notes. I'll put a link to your drive-through store in the show notes, so mm-hmm. listeners should go there to find more information and to uh, make purchases if they desire. And go shops. There's only pay what you want for a few more hours. So if you want to, so you, 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 yeah, you you may. You, if this episode goes up tonight, you may or you may or may not uh, catch the sale on it. I did as I was as I was uh, doing the podcast. I went in and grabbed it, but hey, <laughs> yeah, that's good. I hope you enjoy it. I hope so too. I, I probably will. Well, Jay, man, thank you. Ah, no problem. This was really nice. Well, folks, as as always, like I said, check the show notes. There'll be links in the show notes. Uh, be safe. Be healthy. God bless. Roll your dice well. And I will talk with the rest of you all tomorrow. Later, folks. Um